It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. All right, the mystery has been solved. Donald Trump was not wearing his pants backwards uh, in that speech over the weekend. It just looked that way with a certain picture. So everybody can now stand down. There was a zipper, I guess. I don't know. I'm not going to spend any more time on this. But here's a mystery that hasn't been solved. Uh, The reporter, I should put that in air quotes, the alleged reporter, the supposed reporter, the ostensible reporter who asked Kamala Harris a question when she held a news conference in Mexico City on Tuesday, uh, lied, I guess that's not too strong a term, about who she was. She said she was a journalist for the Spanish-language network Univision. She introduced herself as Maria Fernanda. And the reason it's attracted a lot of attention was that she said, thank you, Madam Vice President. For me, it's an honor because I actually got to vote for the first time as a nationalized citizen. I voted for you. And then she asked a softball question. You know, what do you say to the women, mothers and fathers of color on both sides of the border? Uh, What will you do for them in the coming years? All right. So obviously, you know, for a journalist to stand up and say, oh, I love you and I voted for you. And here's my softball question. uh, Doesn't speak very well to the press corps. But it turns out she doesn't work for Univision. Um, We don't exactly know who she was. Univision put out a very strong statement saying that they have nothing to do with this woman. So how does she get in a position to ask a question of the vice president of the United States? Well, a Harris spokesman told the Huffington Post uh, that the person misrepresented herself to the VP staff as part of Univision's crew. Of course, the crew was properly credentialed. The White House is looking into this. So the screw up was on the, the U.S. side. And uh, it's a pretty bad screw-up. I don't know. Is it, that's the level of vetting. And it obviously raises the security concerns. There is a woman who is a Univision reporter with a similar name, but she works in Miami and she wasn't on this trip. So she had to post something saying, hey, I didn't do this and I didn't uh, make that unethical statement. So that's a mystery that has yet to be uh, unraveled. Uh, there may be a strike, an employee strike at the New Yorker. So this is fascinating. There may be a strike by staff members at the New Yorker. They actually were picketing the Greenwich Village townhouse of Adam Wintour, who is, of course, the longtime doyen and um, leader of Condé Nast, of which the New Yorker is a part. So uh, since they're all clever writers, I guess they're not all writers, they were holding signs like, you can't eat prestige. Uh, Let's see, there was another one here. Bosses wear Prada. Workers get nada. Uh, I like that. That's pretty clever. So the New Yorker has a union, and the union is complaining uh, that the uh, management is not negotiating in good faith. And the fact is, you know, living in one of the most expensive cities in the world, the base salary uh, at the New Yorker is $42,000. Now, that doesn't sound terrible, you know, if you're living in Wichita. But obviously, uh, and it depends on the kind of jobs, of course. But that's not the world's greatest salary, you know, if you're going to live in or around Manhattan. Um, so the union says it's on the verge of calling a strike that could actually either slow down or stop the production of the magazine. And, of course, this is a common tactics that, you, that unions uh, do with the kind of threat. Uh, they've got a whole bunch of demands on pay, health insurance, job security, outside work, and so forth and so on. Here is a uh, fact checker of their magazine saying people assume New Yorker employees are compensated a certain way because of the quality of the journalism. She said some employees still make less than $60,000 a year after 20 years at the company. Well, I don't know if there's a strike. We'll tell you all about it. 
Um, Barry Weiss, uh, you may recall her. She is the editor who, uh, opinion editor who quit the New York Times because she said she'd been bullied. She had been brought in to try to bring in more op-ed pieces that were not just, you know, uh, left-wing liberals agreeing with everything the New York Times stands for. She has started a podcast, yeah, who hasn't, called Honestly. And on that podcast, which debuted yesterday, she talked about her departure from the New York Times. And Barry Weiss says, uh, I'm a newspaper woman without a newspaper. A less poetic way to say that is, I'm one of those people that maybe you've been reading about who left a big fancy media company to start a newsletter on Substack, and now I know just what the world needed another podcast. How did I go? Barry asked, from writing and editing at the opinion pages of the New York Times to striking out on my own. Well, the tedious version of the story involves Slack channels with axe and guillotine emojis and bullying in full view of the people in charge of the paper. She goes on to say it involves activist journalists who treat the paper like a high school cafeteria where those they deem problematic just can't sit here. Most tragically, it involves editors who live in total fear of internet mobs. Well, I think she is not only incredibly smart, uh, but very brave. And, you know, it's not easy to leave a job at a place like the Times and start out on Substack and start your own podcast. Uh, But I think she's going to get a lot of attention uh, for this podcast and for her writing. Uh, And, you know, she could be one of those people who proves you don't have to have a big media institution behind you in order to, you know, have a good career in the business of journalism. Hey, there's a lot of pieces because of the off-year elections uh, on Tuesday about what does this all mean. And this is always true in the year after presidential election. Really, the only elections are in New Jersey and Virginia. And then there's sometimes a handful of special elections. So uh, in Virginia, a place I know something about, Terry McAuliffe, the former Democratic governor of Virginia, running for his old job, easily renominated over three people that no one have ever heard of. And uh, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, also kind of a moderate Democrat, won renomination uh, without a challenge from the left. So, you know, the pundits are saying, well, this just shows you that, in least, at least in these state and local elections, uh, Democrats, rank and file Democrats, aren't going totally left wing. Uh, I would argue that. Um, Terry McAuliffe it isn't necessarily really indicative of a national trend. Now, he will run in the fall against a Republican guy named Youngkin, who uh, ran as a conservative Republican, but not necessarily a huge fan of Donald Trump. So that could be interesting. But the fact is, Terry McAuliffe was a pretty popular governor. And Virginia has one of the weirdest things that I think is just ridiculous, which is it's got a one-term limit on governors. So it takes away from the people who like the job someone is doing, they can't, they can't run again, at least not for consecutive terms. So had McAuliffe been able to run again, he probably would have been reelected. Now, as you'll know, you know, when I first moved to the Washington area, Virginia was a pretty red state. Then it kind of trended purple. Now it's pretty blue. There's been a series of Democratic governors, McAuliffe, uh, Tim Kaine, uh, Ralph Northam, of course, got into all that trouble with the old yearbook and the KKK photos and all of that. So I think McAuliffe's going to win. I think he's going to win because uh, he is well-known in the state. He was he has a national reputation as a former chairman of the DNC. Um, and I don't know that it proves much of anything other than he's a good candidate when he's running against various... Non- in other words, there was nobody of statewide stature that challenged him. And speaking of weird systems, New York City, the um, Democratic primary for mayor is coming up. And the person with the most votes may not win. I didn't realize this, but a couple of years ago, city voters approved a, what do they call it, ranked voting, 
where people can go into the booth and say, here's my number one choice, but here's my number two and my number three. And if the people, if, if I guess if a majority, if no candidate, and there's a whole bunch of candidates in this field, can claim a majority of number one votes, then the number two and number three votes count, and they count for less. So you conceivably, and this has happened in other cities that have done this, I'm not a huge fan of this really, but conceivably the next mayor of New York City, because whoever wins the Democratic primary is going to be the next mayor of New York City, whether it's Yang or Eric Adams or whoever it is, could win on the basis of being more voters' second choice, or even third choice. Wow, it's weird. Uh, you remember the um, the ransomware attack that on the meat company, JBS, world's largest meat supplier? Well, the company came out yesterday and said it paid the ransom, $11 million to hackers. I think this is awful. Like, I understand the Colonial Pipeline did it, and then the feds recovered some of that money in Bitcoin. You know, the more that companies pay this ransom, the more they're just encouraging these hackers. There'll be more and more of these attacks. I guess you got to make, oh, it was a very difficult decision, the CEO says. But it just seems like these companies are choosing to reward those who break the law by shutting them down. And there has to be a coordinated national response for this. All right, story number one. President Biden in London today. He'll meet with Boris Johnson. He will probably have met with Boris Johnson by the time you hear this podcast. And, you know, the stories are all favorable. They're going to build on the World War II agreement that laid the foundation for the Allies' special relationship. Uh, They're going to renew what's called the Atlantic Charter, uh, originally signed by Winston Churchill and FDR in 1941. Well, look, the Biden fans say uh, he's the next FDR, right? Uh, A couple of stories are pointing out that there are a lot of differences between these two leaders. Biden, for example, opposed Brexit, which uh, that's how Boris Johnson got elected. He was a mayor of London. He was a leader of the Brexit campaign. It was successful. And uh, he ultimately became prime minister so he could help put it into action. Uh, Biden also concerned about Northern Ireland, since this Brexit Brexit deal has kind of really seriously worsened the tensions there. and Biden, you know, he's only been there about a day, but he gave a speech uh, to a U.S. military unit there. It was a pretty good speech. I saw it. He said, the United States is back. So what's happening here is, and of course, he doesn't meet with Putin until next week, but he said he's going to tell Putin what he needs to tell him and all of that. Now, Putin, meanwhile, stuck his finger in President Biden's eye by choosing yesterday to outlaw Navalny's opposition movement. He could have done that. He could have waited. You know, he knows. So he's basically saying, look, you're going to come here. You're going to lecture me about human rights and you're going to lecture me about cyber hacking and all that kind of stuff. Well, let me just tell you, nobody tells Vladimir Putin what to do. So, uh, you know, this is the kind of thing with a different president. Maybe the meeting would have been canceled. But he basically, you know, it's not that it's a great shock that in the autocracy that is Russia, that, you know, opposition movements don't have enough power to ever actually win the presidency. That's why Putin is, you know, president for life, it seems. Uh, but by choosing this moment, when Biden's at the G7 and is going to meet with him next week in Switzerland, to outlaw the political party or the movement that Navalny heads uh, was a real slap in the face and, and deliberately done. No question about it. The timing was not coincidental. Uh, we'll see how Biden handles it. By the way, also now that he's on the world stage for this trip this week, uh, it kind of leaked out. You would think he'd want to make the dramatic announcement once he's already in Europe. But the United States is going to pay for 500 million COVID vaccines from Pfizer and help distribute them around the world. You know, this is the America of the Marshall Plan after World War II. This is the America stepping up to help less fortunate countries. And I think that's the kind of thing that can bring America 
a lot of favorable reactions in, among these countries, including our allies, with whom, to put it diplomatically, relations were strained during the Trump presidency. No, other people say, well, why are we spending all this money when we could spending that money here at home? But nevertheless, you know, this kind of thing can be a tool of diplomacy. But I got to say, you know, Biden's going to get a lot of favorable publicity on this trip. I don't have a problem with anything he's done so far. And I think, obviously, since he believes in NATO and Donald Trump was, was a disruptor, who wanted NATO to, countries to contribute more to the joint defense and a lot of other things. The press basically agrees with Biden's position. So if he goes over there, if he gets a good reception, if he has a nice meeting with Boris Johnson, if he gives a couple of good speeches, he's going to get great press. And one of the reasons he's going to get great press is that he's not Donald Trump. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out over the next few days. Number two, uh, this is a big deal. A federal watchdog. This is the inspector general of the park police. Uh, completely challenging the narrative that virtually all of the media adopted last summer with the clearing of Lafayette Park. Now, for those of you who haven't thought about this for a while, Lafayette Park is this lovely little park right across the street from the White House. It also is a place where demonstrators often go and wave signs because it's right in view of the front of the White House. It's right across Pennsylvania Avenue. So last year, we had the situation when there were, it was a few days after the murder of George Floyd. There were starting to be um, demonstrations everywhere, including in Lafayette Park. And so the park police came out, and there was some dispute about whether they had used uh, tear gas. It turns out they had used tear gas on other days, not on this day, but other police and law enforcement agencies had used tear gas to dispense the crowd there late in the afternoon. And the media narrative immediately was this was done ordered by the white house to help donald trump because what happened is about 12 minutes and this got and the thing turned violent and there were these awful scenes and it was full of tear gas and the argument uh by the protesters and largely adopted by the media that they've been protesting um peacefully there was no violence and suddenly you know the park police come suddenly there's tear gas in the air suddenly you got you know riot equipped uh people trying to move them out and it turned into a melee and 12 minutes later, Donald Trump comes out, takes the short walk through Lafayette Park, goes to a church that's essentially right next door to the White House, holds up a Bible upside down, as it turned out, and had this photo op uh, because that church had been damaged by fire in one of the previous demonstrations. So uh, it was completely, totally overshadowed. This was an uproar that lasted for weeks and weeks and weeks. I mean, I still remember it as one of the sort of signature moments of the Trump presidency, which is Donald Trump was so callous that he ordered uh, the, the park to be cleared so he could go have his photo op at the church. Now the IG says that did not happen. That's not what happened. The Inspector General's report, and they did a lot of uh, interviews. Now, they weren't able to interview other agencies, so some of the journalists who were now resisting to say, well, it's not definitive. Um, but the fact is, and I've I just read the stories in the New York Times and the Washington Post, and they're they kind of report it straight, but they never say anything about the media coverage. Oh, this was the prevailing view at the time. Uh, never, never even say that this, you know, that their newspapers had reported this. Uh, and this is what the media do. When something they report, and maybe it was a good faith error, maybe it was based on, you know, eyewitness accounts at the time, but it was the dominant media narrative that has now been pretty much knocked down by this Inspector General's report. So what the IG report says is, and there were flash grenades, there was chemical spray, there were officers with shields and so forth. But what it says was the park police had decided much earlier in the day to clear the park 
because they were trying to make way for contractors to come in and put up a taller fence that uh, park police officials did not know that Donald Trump planned to come out, walk across the park, and go to that church. That happened about 5.30 in the afternoon. Uh, and the, the first time that any park police official found out about the planned Trump walk was about an hour before it happened when William Barr, attorney general, came to inspect the area. I'll quote from the time story. Evidence showed Park Police did not know about Mr. Trump's plan to walk across the square until mid to late afternoon on June 1st, hours after it had begun developing its operational plan and the fencing contractor had arrived in the park. The head of operations for Park Police said they learned that this person learned of Trump's plan when Barr came out to look at it. And Barr said, are these people still going to be, be here when POTUS comes out? And the commander said, are you freaking kidding me? He hung his head and walked away. And it was soon after that that the confrontation turned violent. Oh, here's the Washington Post story. The report also found that D.C. police officers fired tear gas at protesters. It was this huge dispute about whether there actually was tear gas. Well, now we know it was, but it wasn't the Park Police. It was the Metropolitan um, Police Department of the District of Columbia. And the, the crowd was dispersing, but, you know, it just, it, I mean, what happened was a travesty. But the idea that it was ordered by the White House, I think, has been pretty well knocked down by that. In fact, um, you know, this was the thing the night before Trump had been taken to an emergency bunker and he was very angry with the Secret Service because he thought it made him look weak because there had been the previous day of protest. Now, yesterday, it will not surprise you to know that the 45th president put out a statement thanking the inspector general for completely and totally exonerating me in the clearing of Lafayette Park. He said, our fine park police made the decision to clear the park to allow a contractor to safely install anti-scale fencing. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three, uh, Anthony Fauci. As you know, he's been in the news very much lately with his emails coming out and has taken a lot of heat from a lot of people, particularly on the right, who do not, do not like the 80-year-old doctor who has been doing this battle against infectious diseases since the Reagan administration. Well, Fauci kind of punched back yesterday. He was on Chuck Todd's MSNB show, MTP Daily. And, of course, the question came up about uh, the Wuhan lab and his position on that and all of the uh, uh, emails that he had gotten. And so what set up the question to Fauci kind of went off was a video from Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn uh, at a hearing, uh, I don't know if it was, that, that, I guess it was that day. Um, she floated a conspiracy theory that Fauci was uh, colluding with Mark Zuckerberg on a narrative about COVID-19. Here's a quote from the senator. Dr. Fauci was emailing with Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook trying to create that narrative, cherry-picking information so that you would only know what they wanted you to know, and there would be a narrative that would fit with this cherry-picked information. So he's asked about this on MSNBC. And there was an email or two between them, but it, was, it didn't say what Blackburn said it said. Uh, Fauci, I don't have a clue what she just said. I don't have a clue of what she's talking about. And I'm sorry. I don't want to be pejorative against the United States Senator, says Fauci. But I have no idea what she's talking about. And you know, Chuck, if you go through each and every one of the points, which are so ridiculous, just painfully ridiculous, if you go through each and every one of them, you can explain and debunk it immediately. And he's not done. It's very dangerous, Chuck, 
because a lot of what you're seeing as attacks on me, quite frankly, are attacks on science. Because all the things that I've spoken about consistently from the very beginning have been fundamentally based on science. Sometimes those things were inconvenient truths for people, and it was pushback against me. So if you're trying to get at me as a public health official and scientist, you're really attacking not only Dr. Anthony Fauci, you're attacking science. Anybody looks at what is clearly going on, sees that, you'd have to be asleep not to see that. All right, so I'm going to dissent a little bit from this. I understand what Fauci's saying. He feels like he's been the victim of a lot of unfair attacks, and, and, and it is true that on the one hand, he hasn't been right on everything. He seemed to modify his position on masks. He seemed less open than he claims to be now about the idea that the Wuhan lab was the source, we still don't know for sure, of the original outbreak of COVID-19. Um, but look, he was in a position for uh, a very long year of having to diplomatically correct President Trump, uh, who often didn't take his advice and often criticized him while he was, you know, a member of the Coronavirus Task Force. But to say that to criticize Fauci is to criticize science kind of implies that there's only one correct interpretation of science, and Fauci knows that. I think he was getting a little testy because he started being beaten up on. So in other words, it is possible to believe in science and still criticize Anthony Fauci. It is possible to believe in science and still say that Anthony Fauci's particular actions or his particular interpretation of this or that scientific matter is wrong. Uh, so it's a little bit of, you know, uh, I am the state, Louis XIV. Uh, I don't think Fauci worded it as well as he could have. I, he could have said tax on me are politically motivated. He could have said all oh, my answers are based on science and people should respect that. But he didn't. He went further. Attacks on me are attacks on science. And, of course, that is just prompting more attacks on him. Uh, that, that was utterly predictable. Okay, number four. Let's turn to TikTok. I spent a lot of time on this last year. You may only vaguely recall, unless you're under 18, in which case you very definitely recall, that during the election, President Trump put out an executive order to ban TikTok and WeChat and other Chinese-owned apps uh, while there was a national security review. And, you know, there was some legitimate concern about because this is uh, a Chinese-owned company, which is phenomenally popular in the U.S., particularly among teenagers and young adults. You know, and a lot, it's, you know I know about this because of kids dancing videos, and some of it got political. You know, Kelly and Conway's daughter went on TikTok. Um, but basically, it's a way for younger people to um, have their say, shoot a lot of funny videos, videos with uh, optical illusions, a lot of singing and dancing and all that kind of stuff. Trump was going to get rid of it because he said, what if uh, the Chinese owners are using this very popular app, very popular in America, to um, gather information, gather data about the U.S. or about American users. So they tried to work out a compromise, and there was, a, you know, TikTok was going to sell to American company. That didn't quite work out. And it was just sort of in limbo. Well, now President Biden has reversed that. And, you know, I always thought it could be worked out, and this was, you know, the idea of just getting rid of this hugely popular app uh, that the national security concerns could have worked out, been worked out. And indeed, Biden's order says, we're creating a process to scrutinize whether apps controlled by any foreign adversary present risks to U.S. national security and the security of Americans' sensitive personal data. According to the White House, reading here from Washington Post story, after the government reviews for each particular app, uh, the feds can take action as appropriate. 
So in other words, it's not completely blowing off the idea that there could be concerns here because, it, you know, we are obviously in a very adversarial posture toward China, and I certainly don't put it past China, even though this is a private company, to use this as a way of undermining American national security. But it's just on, on, on another level, it seems like of all the things that you're going to pick on me, Huawei and all these other Chinese companies where there are serious questions and serious threats, they go after TikTok. Um, I just think if they had carried this out to fruition, it would have been extraordinarily unpopular, maybe with a group that doesn't have a lot of clout, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old girls, a lot of girls are on it. There are some boys too, of course. Uh, anyway, so TikTok will be reviewed. I don't think it's going to be banned. And that's, you know, you could go through a very long list of things that Joe Biden has done to reverse what Donald Trump did on the environment, climate change, immigration, you name it. Very long list. And now you can add TikTok to that list. All right, number five as we wrap up the podcast here. Interesting piece in The Atlantic, which says that, you know, for all the focus on the mess at the border and all of the attention being paid to the border and how much is Biden's fault and how much is Kamala Harris's fault and all that, there's another border that you should be worried about, and it's the border with Canada. Now, I really hadn't tuned into this. The U.S.-Canadian border remains closed to all but essential travel, cutting off families, would-be tourists, billions of dollars in commerce. This is all because of COVID, of course. Travel between the U.S. and Canada is down more than 80% since before the pandemic. This has created a lot of problems for a lot of people. Uh, travelers who fly into Canada must land at one of four airports and then pay to spend the first three nights of a 14-day mandatory quarantine at a designated hotel, says The Atlantic. Um, and that can cost more than $1,600. There are no exceptions, even for fully vaccinated people or Canadian citizens who happen to be visiting the U.S. on business or whatever. The restrictions have essentially forced Canada's only Major League Baseball team, the Toronto Blue Jays, and its only NBA team, the Toronto Raptors, into exile in the U.S. So they won't even make an exception for their professional athletes, you know, what, to play home games? This is fascinating. So... Ironically, case counts are plummeting and vaccinations are rising. Most states here in the U.S. have relaxed or eliminated most restrictions. But in Canada, Justin Trudeau is in no hurry to end the shutdown. There are current limits that are going to expire on June 21st, but he said that before he begins to loosen the rules, he wants at least 75% of Canadians to receive a first shot and 20% to be fully vaccinated. Canada apparently has lagged behind America in vaccinations. It's been catching up recently in first doses. Uh, at the end of May, nearly 68% of the adult population had gotten one shot. That's higher than here in the U.S. But just 7%, just 7% have gotten their entire regimen needing both shots. Canada has been following the British model of delaying second doses so that more people can get their first doses. And that's interesting because here, once you get your first dose, you're automatically signed up for the second dose. You get priority. But that did mean in a time when a lot of people couldn't get it, that more people had to wait for their first doses. Now, I mean, I can't give this stuff away. You mean free pot in Washington State, free beer, free donuts, free everything, lotteries. Anyway, uh, some American politicians are not happy about this. Chuck Schumer, Democrat, Elise Stefanik, um, the, now the number three House Republican. She's the one who replaced Liz Cheney. They are pressing the Biden administration to work with Canada on a reopening plan. Because there's a lot of commerce at stake here. New England governors are also worried. So, you know, if you're in one of these states like Vermont 
or Western New York, areas like that that are close to the Canadian border, there's a lot of Canadians that come and ordinarily would come and shop at your stores and go back to Canada, and vice versa. You know, your people can go to Canada. Well, all of that is slowed to a trickle because of these um, restrictions. And also, a lot of people are, are traveling by land because if you're, you know, I went to college in Buffalo. I mean, it's a two-hour drive to Toronto. It's not very far to Niagara Falls. Uh, so areas like that that are close to the border, it's easier to get in by land, but then there are all kinds of other restrictions. Um, the Canadian government doesn't have much sympathy for citizens who left the country. Maybe they wanted to go spend the winter in Florida or something, and now are trying to come back because they disregarded Trudeau's warnings not to travel in the first place. So it's just fascinating to me. There's so much focus, obviously, on the Mexican border and Central American illegal immigrants and all of that. But Canada, and look, I, you got to say that Trudeau has to put his citizens first, and if he thinks this is what he needs to do to protect his country, fine. It does seem like he's going kind of overboard with the dramatic, I mean dramatic, not even saying dropping cases. I don't know the exact figures north of the border. Uh, but it is having an absolute economic impact on a lot of people, and not just being inconvenienced, but are losing business. So we'll see how that plays out. So we covered it all today. We've talked about London, talked about Mexico, we've talked about Canada, uh, a bit of a worldview here, a little bit more of an international focus for today's podcast. But we also talked about Donald Trump's pants and TikTok and a lot of other stuff. One of the reasons I enjoy doing this podcast is you get to range so widely. I can kind of throw in anything uh, that interests me that hopefully interests you. And I don't have to hit a hard break and toss to a commercial uh, after eight or nine minutes on the air. So we hope you'll subscribe on your Amazon device. Uh, I don't think you can get it on TikTok, but you can get it on Spotify or Google Podcasts, or Apple iTunes. Back here tomorrow. See you then with more buzzing. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.